Morning. The sermon this morning is not on Veterans Day, all right? I had a few announcements before I turned to God's Word, and uh, one of them is I would like to, to honor those who have served our country. Um, I am a, a firm believer that the church is not about patriotism, okay? We're not going to hoorah-rah America, but we are grateful for the privilege of preaching the gospel and worshiping Jesus freely. Um, and that's the freedom that we celebrate this morning. So if you've served our country in the armed forces, would you stand up, please? Thank you for serving. Um, so you stay standing, stay standing. Um, and, and then if you have family currently serving in the military, would you stand? And just stay standing as well. Because uh, we know it's a sacrifice on family as well uh, when you have loved ones who are serving. And, and we know that some people downplay it and say, oh, it's just an occupation. But it's an occupation that comes at great risk. Um, and you're willing to put yourself in harm's way that we might be free. Um, and that's something that we don't think about often, uh, but we should and we should be grateful for. Um, so I'm just going to pray and thank God for those who have served and those who are serving our country. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we are grateful this morning uh, to live in a country where we are free to worship Christ and free to proclaim Christ. Uh, Lord, that is what truly matters. And Lord, there are believers gathering all over the world today who did so at the very peril of their lives. They knew that gathering with the church could result in severe persecution. And Father, those thoughts never cross our mind because we live in one of the most religiously free countries that's ever existed. And we thank you for that freedom and we thank you this morning for those who have given of their lives um, and their time and their energy and years of their lives to serve and protect us. Lord, we are grateful for them. We're grateful for those this morning who have directly served, and we praise you for them. We thank you this morning for the families who are supporting those who are serving. Uh, we're, we're grateful this morning, Father. And so we want to give honor where honor is due, and we are, we are a blessed people uh, because there are men and women who have sacrificed greatly uh, to preserve those blessings, and we want to thank you this morning for them. And in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. I also want to comment this morning, uh, before we turn to God's word, on the tragedy of last Sunday in Sutherland Springs, Texas. Um, you're all well aware of the 26 people that, that died in that church. And, and I've read a little bit on that this week from the, from the news standpoint, but also from a Christian standpoint, and, and realizing that, that we stand with those who died because we're one in Christ. Isn't that interesting? That, that this is even greater than, than other, I think, tragedies that happen in our country as believers for the simple reason we stand with them. They, this could have been our church. Somebody could have come through our doors and, and we can get, and I would just encourage you, this is, don't get into politics this morning. Don't be thinking, oh, well, this happened or this could have been prevented. Just weep with those who weep. Right? Be broken with those who are broken this morning. And there's a church that if they're gathering, and I assume they are today, they're broken. Uh, because somebody came in last week and killed women and children and men alike. Um, and there are those who are, 
who have lost loved ones, entire families that died. Um, and as a church, we want to pray for them this morning. Um, and that's, I think, what God calls us to do. And as Christians, I would encourage you to don't use tragedy um, in the moment for political statements, but just grieve and weep and pray and call upon God to heal and restore and even call upon him to save people through what we see as tragedies. So would we pray once again um, and ask God to work through this tragedy uh, from our perspective. We know that God is over all things, uh, but even this evil that is in our world that touches us and even sometimes gets close to home, we want to pray and ask God to, to work through. Let's pray together. Lord, we bow our heads again. Uh, because we don't understand the tragedy that comes into our society. Um, sadly, we're no strangers to killing, unjust killing. It happens in a variety of forms and in a variety of ways, and it breaks our hearts however it happens. Lord, this particular tragedy is uniquely close because we gathered on Sunday morning every week to worship you. And we don't think about somebody coming in and, and harming this body of believers. And neither did the people in Sutherland Springs. They gathered to worship you and, and somebody for reasons that we may never know, truly never know, came in and brought great devastation and great harm. And so we cry out to you to be a God of comfort to that body of believers this morning. We pray that you administer grace to them in profound ways. We pray that you would, you would bring peace where there is no peace. Father, we pray for those who are struggling with bitterness at God and, just, and they can't understand. Would they be able to find comfort in Job and know that you give and you take away and blessed be the name of the Lord. And so Father, as fellow believers this morning, uh, we we carry a sense of heaviness because these are brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, these are people who have been bought by the blood of Jesus, many of them. And so our hearts are heavy and we cry out to you. Uh, we pray that, that your church would, would not respond in hostility, that there would be no antagonism or, or even political uh, measuring taking place. But it would be a time to respond with the grace of the gospel and the love of Jesus, even in the face of great tr uh, trial, struggle, and pain. And so, Father, we just want to call upon you this morning to care for that body of believers and minister to them and through them in profound ways. And in Christ's name, amen. All right, and one more thing. I know that there is a Friday after Thanksgiving feast here at the church. All right, uh, we're going to do a Tuesday night praise and dessert night at our house for the whole church the Tuesday before Thanksgiving. All right, so you're all invited, everybody at the same time. We'll pack you in. Uh, we've got heaters outside. So we've got a patio you can be on out there. Uh, bring food, sweet food preferably. Um, it's just a dessert time. If you don't want to make anything, come because somebody always brings too much. All right, so we're just going to have a time, of, a real time of just praising God together as a church, of just, of testimonies and praises, remembering the work of Christ, especially I'll share a devotional on the work of Christ, and as believers, Thanksgiving is really a time that we point to him, and we're ultimately thankful for him. And so that's Tuesday night before Thanksgiving, I think it's the 21st, is that correct? 
um, and it's going to be from 7 to 9 p.m. If you can't come to late, show up anyway. If you want to stay later, that's fine. Uh, but it'll be from 7 to 9 uh, at our house, and we'll get that address to you. Uh, we live about a minute and a half from the church here, okay? So that's the Tuesday of Thanksgiving week, 7 to 9, praise and worship time at our home uh, with dessert afterwards, okay? All right, all the announcements are done. Let's take our Bibles and open them to Psalm 119 this morning. The Great Wall of China is a pretty amazing um, feat, if you will, of human effort, achievement, and even history. Uh, anybody ever seen the Great Wall? I've not. Anybody here seen it? Anybody? Nobody? Oh, man. All right. Well, we should have a trip sometime and go see it. Um, I would love to see the Great Wall of China. Uh, it is a, a fascinating piece of history. You know, it's over 13,000 miles long. That's like East Coast, West Coast, East Coast, West Coast, East Coast, West Coast. I mean, you're talking back and forth. I and mean, that's, that's a giant wall um, built over millennia, started 2,700 years ago, roughly, so historians think. Um, it averages seven meters high and 6.5 meters across. It's pretty significant. Um, what's amazing is that it was built brick by brick, right? Piece by piece. If you would have told a, a man 2,500 years ago who was probably a convict, because that's what they used, a lot of convicts and forced labor to build the wall, um, hey, one day this wall is going to be one of the most amazing feats of human history. Like, yeah, whatever, man. I don't care. It's just I'm putting bricks because I have to, right? One brick at a time. It's interesting that we here at Elk Grove Bible Church, we every Sunday open the word and preach the word of God. We're laying brick by brick, piece by piece. And you might wonder what's happening? What's going on? Well, Christ is building his church. God is building mature believers, and that's how he does it. He does it through the word. He does it through, through your own personal study of the word. And he does it as the church gathers. And we submit ourselves to the holy scriptures. We're laying bricks. And what's, what's interesting is that you might look at somebody who you look at and say, man, their maturity in Christ is phenomenal. Well, how did it happen? Brick by brick. Piece by piece building maturity through the word of God. And so this morning, we're going to dive back into God's word. And, and you might wonder sometimes, how effective is this? Because frankly, my week, I don't feel like I'm all that mature. I feel like my Christian life is just kind of stagnant and struggling. And you're like, Lord, is this really working? I think it, it is working. You know how we know it's working? Because God said it's how he works. And so you may not see it, you may not feel it, but over millennia, the wall was built. So over your lifetime, God's doing his work. And we're going to go back to it and say, God, do your work. Because frankly, I don't feel like anything's happening to my heart right now. Or I feel like I'm pulling bricks out of the wall by my life. God, do your work. You promised to bless your word as we submit to it, as we hear it. Do your work. And so this morning, we're back in Psalm 119, beginning in verse 9. I just want to review a little bit from last Sunday. This is what we're calling the second strophe or second section of the chapter. Remember, it's divided into 22 sections, all letters of the Hebrew alphabet. This masterful poem that God is weaving in the scriptures to give us one glorious theme, the supremacy and benefits of the word of God. That's what he's doing. He's showing us over and over that you need this book. 
You're gonna, you want to walk with me? You need this book. You want to know me? You need this book. And so each section is going to drive home the same nail in the coffin. There's 22 nails in this coffin, if you will. And they're all hammered firmly over and over and over. And by the time we're done with this series, I really believe we as a church will be thoroughly convinced of the benefits of God's word. You might be so convinced, you're like, Pastor Justin, I'm ready for you to go to something else. I'm, I'm okay with that. Because I want you to be so convinced that why do we go to the scriptures? It's because we desperately need them. And so last week we were blessed and blameless that God's good plan for your life is to walk with Jesus. He wants to bless you, but he wants you to be blameless. And you can't ever separate holiness and happiness because if you'll truly be holy, you will be happy. And if you will be happy, you will be holy. And so this morning we get to Psalm 119, 9 to 16. And here we actually see something interesting. We see, I think, spiritually, Newton's third law of thermodynamics. Now, I'm not a physicist, and if you are, you might come and need to talk to me afterwards if I butcher this. But, you know, to every, every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction, correct? Am I, am I right so far? All right, that's Newton's third law. All right, sounds good. Pastor Doug agrees. This is true in the world of physics. To every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction, but it's also true in the Christian life and Christian experience. The first action, if you will, is that God does a work called regeneration. He saves you. There's a, there's a tug by God. It's the first action. And you respond in repentance and faith. You believe the gospel. There's an action by God. You're born again. But then there's an equal and opposite reaction if you will, in the, in the life of one who's born again because you're no longer the same. There's an action and there's a, an equal reaction to what God has done. And it's the process of transformation. You can no longer be who you once were. If you say you follow Jesus and your life has never changed, at best, your Christianity is defunct. At worst, you don't know Jesus at all because there's no category in the scriptures for somebody who professes to know the Savior and is not transformed by the Savior. Did you follow that? There's no category for you because everyone in the scriptures that's been changed by Jesus in salvation is changed by him in sanctification, the outworks of the Christian life. And so this morning, we need to dive into God's word and see how these two things work together. Let's read once again, Psalm 119, nine to 16. And we don't do this every week, but would you stand with me in honor of God's word? And let's read it together. Psalm 119, beginning in verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Let's pray together Psalm 119, 169. Father, we bow our hearts and our heads to you this morning and we ask this. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Amen. You may be seated. 
the, the main idea, if you will, this morning, the central theme that I hope grabs your heart and grips your soul is treasuring the word of God produces conformity to the God of the word. That should be on your note sheet this morning. It should be on the screen behind me. Treasuring the word of God produces conformity to the God of the word. Let's walk through these verses together and see how that connection is made. The first thing we have here this morning is the essential question to ask. The essential question to ask. You, you've, you know this question well. If you have followed Christ for any length of time, this is not a new verse for you. How can a young man keep his way pure? Now, real quick, you're not exempt if you're not a young man. Okay, don't think, well, not, it doesn't apply to me. That's clearly not me. That's not how this works, okay? This is a statement that applies to everybody. The author, whoever that is, is asking the question from the perspective of, if I was young, I'd want to seek you. Because when I seek you when I'm young, it prevents a lot of heartache when I'm old. That's his point. So he's asking, we, we believe the author's old here, older, and he's had a life of experience. If it is David, you know his failures were great. Correct? I mean, he had a lot of problems. And if it is him, he's asking, oh, what would it be like to have kept your way when I was young? Because life would have been so much better. So let's say you're no longer young. And I'm not going to draw that line this morning. All right, but whatever you think that line is, let's say you're no longer young. You could say, how could an old man keep, your ways, keep his ways pure? Because Lord, I want to live for you. How could a middle-aged woman, I won't say old woman, no, no, nobody want to be offended here this morning. How could a middle-aged woman keep her way pure? Because God, I want to. Maybe I've, maybe I've run my life just in a miserable way. I don't want to go down that path anymore. I've experienced the pain and agony of running from God. Oh, that I would keep my way pure, God. Please, would you do that? And so that's the question that really every true child of God is going to ask. If you've truly been saved by grace, that question will bubble to the surface of your soul real quickly and real often. How can I live for you? That's just the basis of this question. God, how can I live for you? Have you ever felt that way? Lord, I want to live for you, but man, it's hard. You know, I wish I could just die and be with Jesus. It'd be a whole lot easier than trying to live for you with the world and the flesh and the devil always attacking me. He says, how can I live for you? But if you've been saved by God's grace, you will ask this question. And I want to take a moment this morning and step back and deal with two key issues real briefly because I think they're important. I'm afraid if we don't address these two issues, we could build a church of moralists. You know what a moralist is? Somebody who, who lives a, a decent life void of God. Do you know there are a lot of religious people in the world who are better moralists than me and they're gonna go to hell? They're gonna die and be separated from God forever because they're trusting in their moralism. Religions based on the fear of moralism do really well. Be good, you'll go to heaven. And if you be bad, you go to hell. So I want to be good. I want to be really good. I've done a, a quite a bit of work in, a, in, a, in Salt Lake City, and there's a dominant religion there. And some of those people in that dominant religion are much better on the outside than I might be. More philanthropic, more kind, more whatever. Now, do I want to be kind? Absolutely. Do I want to be philanthropic? Absolutely but I'm not trusting in that to save me. 
And so there's a, a city, a region of the world where they're trusting in that to save them. And like, like the Pharisees, Jesus said, you're full of dead man's bones. And we might pick on another religion of the world, but you know what? That's, that's true of so-called Christians, isn't it? At the end of the day, we're trusting in our performance to get us to a right standing before God. And we need to deal with that this morning even before we open this question. The first thing that we must address is the issue of justification. This question is birthed out of a heart that has been justified. The word justified is a big theological term with a really simple meaning. You've been declared righteous by God. That's all it means. The declaration of righteousness by God through grace in the Savior. 2 Corinthians 5.21. One of my favorite verses in the scriptures. If you have a Bible, feel free to turn there. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. For our sake. That's us. He, God the Father, made him Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Remember I told you in my first sermons here that I've never heard anybody say, I am righteous. People say, I am good. Nobody says, I am righteous. Because nobody is righteous by their own works. And here in 2 Corinthians 5, we have a succinct statement of what it means to be justified. Jesus took your sin, you get his righteousness. You want to talk about God being unfair? This is unfair at its peak. Jesus becoming something he's not so that you could be some, become something you're not. He became sin so you could become righteousness. He should have never become sin. He is the very antithesis of sin. And you and I are the very antithesis of righteous, are we not? I mean, I don't want you to know all of my thoughts and actions in the last 24 hours. Do you want me to know yours? Why not? Because we're not righteous. We don't live righteous. We don't feel righteous. We fake righteous. We just put on pretty smiles, pretty faces, pretty clothes, and we fake it. At the end of the day, we are the embodiment of sin and he is the embodiment of righteousness. And when you are justified, the greatest exchange in the history of humanity happens. The greatest miracle God could ever perform, he performs. He takes a unrighteous sinner and he doesn't just forgive you. Forgiveness isn't enough. If you're forgiven, you can't stand before God because you're still guilty. Are you tracking this morning? You can't stand before a holy God as a forgiven sinner because you're still a sinner and there is no sin in his sight. But he makes you righteous and that alone enables you to stand before God. If he doesn't make you righteous, we're still going to hell. We're going to hell as forgiven sinners. But he makes you righteous and now you can walk into his presence because there is no more sin in your account or even credited to you. It has been removed and you've been given righteousness. Brothers and sisters, nothing will fuel your love for Jesus like meditating on imputed righteousness. Theologians call this alien righteousness, meaning it's from outer space. It's so foreign. It is absolutely outside of us. It's alien to us, but it's imputed by God to you. This question, in Psalm 119, it assumes you're justified. 
And if you do not grasp what it means to be justified, you may ask this question and end up way down the wrong path. Just like every religious person in the history of the world, how can I be pure before God? And then they trust in their works to save them. So it is key this morning that before we move on, we understand that justification is by faith in the completed work of Jesus. If you have your Bible, jump over to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. And I need to stop after this because I love justification by faith alone and I could just spend all morning and we never get to Psalm 119. Romans 4, 4 and 5. Listen to these words very carefully. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. If you have a job here this morning, and when you get your paycheck, you don't thank your boss or your company for their gift. This is what I'm entitled to. It's not a gift. A gift is like the Christmas bonus. And even that isn't really a gift because you have worked but at least it's a little more like a gift, right? It's like, hey, I wasn't expecting this and I got something. If, if you worked and didn't get your wages, you quit. You're like, hey, I'm done. If I'm gonna put in 40, 50, 60 hours and you're not gonna pay me, I'm gonna go to the next guy and get a real job because this is called slavery. I don't do slavery, right? I, I wanna get paid for my work. Ro- Ro- Romans 4.4 4 is draw on the contrast. If you work for it, it's not by grace. It's not a gift. Look at Romans 4, 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies. There's our word again. He justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. This is the essence of what it means to be a Christian. You've been declared righteous by God by faith in Jesus alone. God is, is not sitting in heaven this morning saying, oh, I am, I'm just so happy with you because you're in church this morning. There's, there's, there's one point for you. God is, not, God is not more pleased with you when you have your devotions in the morning. God's not more pleased when you evangelize the lost. And by the word pleased, I mean more accepted in his sight. He's not saying, oh, you're, you are a A-plus Christian. You're kind of a D-minus. You're really close to F. You need to step up your game. It's not how God works. He says, you are declared righteous. The thief on the cross was just as accepted before God as any one of us. And he did nothing but run from Jesus. That's, that's, that's theology that you don't believe unless you believe the scriptures. You don't, you don't embrace that because we really want to perform better so that God will love us. And in justification, we are told God loves you just as much as he ever will the moment you're saved because you're made righteous. Brothers and sisters, we are made righteous by a completed work of Christ. Some religions teach that you're justified at the moment of salvation and you're justified by your works, a dual justification. That's heresy. It is not dual. It's not both. It is complete, finished justification by Christ alone through faith in Christ alone. That is the heart of the Christian message. And this morning, I am belaboring this point because I am I'm scared to go to Psalm 119.9 and create a church of moralistic thinkers who think that, oh, well, yeah, we're just going to live good lives because living a good life does nothing for your soul. 
So justification by faith in the completed work of Christ. But secondly, and this is actually the point of Psalm 119, this other theological term, sanctification. Justification and sanctification. Sanctification simply defined as the sinner striving by grace to live righteously. You're living out your identity. Read the book of Galatians. That's all it is. Your identity, child of God, live it out for the glory of God. That's the whole point. Your identity is in Christ, live it out. Maybe you grew up in a house where your parents would say, you are a Schroeder. Live that way. Now, that doesn't hold a lot of weight for most of us because our families aren't that incredible, right? But there's this idea that this is who I am, live it out. Kind of like for me, living out my identity as a Schroeder means when I go home to Illinois, which is 2,000 miles away, I walk into my parents' house, I don't introduce myself as a guest. I don't ask permission to eat their food. I've lived out of my house for 15 years. I don't ask those questions, I just do it. Why? Because it's my identity. I'm accepted there. It's living out who I am. If you're justified, you will be sanctified. You will live out who you are. There is no ability to claim one without the other. And Romans 6, 1 is so clear. What shall we say then? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be by no means. No one who is justified will continue to live and celebrate their sin. Oh, we will struggle with sin. Just read Romans 7. But we will struggle. Do you realize before Christ, you didn't struggle with sin? You just did it. And you felt bad because sometimes the consequences stunk. I know in my life, I felt bad because I got caught. A conscience does not make you a Christian. That's what God gave every human being to know they fail. But when you're truly a child of God, you will hate your sin. Even when you fail, you will just be grieved over it. You will be broken by it. You won't continue down that path. And like I mentioned last week, saving grace is always transforming grace. Titus 2, you were saved to good works. By the grace that saved you, you will be transformed. Titus 2, 11 to 14. So the question this morning is, do you long to be like Jesus? Not just a better person, not just cleaning up your life, but you genuinely want to follow the Savior because you love him. You're not just sucked into this religious, oh, I've got to clean up my life. If I'm just a better person, life will be better because, I mean, they're good people and their lives look happy. It's not Christianity. It is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and then longing to live for the glory of God alone. And this question in Psalm 119, if you have your Bible, go back there. Psalm 119 is really the shaping question of the entire psalm. The whole psalm hinges on this question. How can I keep my way pure? If we're going to understand Psalm 119, it's going to be because we feel this question. We, we labor in our souls over this question. Lord, I want to live for you, but man, it's hard. Man, I struggle. How do I do it? And it's interesting that this question targets transformation, not intellectualism. Do you notice what he says? How can I keep my way? That was the Old Testament word for path, life. He didn't say, oh God, help me to know you. Now, does he want to know him? Oh, well, absolutely. Because in knowing him, he becomes like him. But he didn't say, oh God, make me smarter. 
just give me more knowledge. That was the Gnostic heresy. If you just know, you'll be fine. And he said, God, I, I want to I be transformed by you. And, and men and women, we must not have a merely intellectual faith, even though our faith is intellectual. If it stops there, your faith is misguided at best. So we have a faith that goes after our transformation. This question from the heart of those who are born again, saved by grace, justified as a free gift, and they long to be transformed. So I've got to ask this morning, does that describe you? Do you say, Pastor Justin, amen. Oh, my heart resonates with that this morning. Are you sitting there this morning and you're struggling because you're thinking, wait a second, time out. All of my good works don't matter? Because if that's what you're thinking this morning, then you may need to be saved. You may need to come to Jesus by faith alone and say, I'm done trying to clean up my life. I need you to transform me. And Spurgeon said one of the greatest fears was that people were flocking to hell through the doors of churches. We can sit here, we can raise our hands, we can hear the word of God, but if we don't submit to Jesus in repentance and faith, we're not born again. And men and women, oh, might we be born again. And so we, we want to learn from this text to treasure the word, but it begins with a heart that has been transformed by the God of the word in salvation. How can I keep my way pure is birthed in that heart. Well, he provides us an answer. So hold on to that. Don't forget that. But here we have the, the essential answer. He provided the essential question. Now we get to the essential answer. Psalm 119b, the second half of 9, nine through 11. How can I keep my way pure? By guarding it according to your word. The first thing we see is God's word is a guard. It's a guard. A guard is a protector. It protects you. Have you ever been in a scenario, excuse me, where you need to be protected? You just feel like, mm, I'd, I'd feel a lot better if somebody was with me who knew, who knew what's going on. I've been in, in a, a lot of foreign countries, and I was in South America, um, in, a, in a country called Guyana, the northern tip of South America. Wonderful country, wonderful people. Um, and I was in a, uh, a big um, market in a, in a town, you know, wall-to-wall bodies, um, and they don't really get a lot of tourists. So if you don't look like them, uh, um, they, they just kind of gawk at you. Um, you know, that just like big eyeball stare, like you're not from around these parts. Um, and so that's going on, and and um, clearly, I'm a foreigner. I'm an, I'm, they may have even known I was an American. And so you're kind of walking, just, just being smart, right? You're like holding on to your wallet. You know, your backpack's all closed. You're holding it in the front because you don't want to get ripped off. There's this guy, though. His name is Andy Gearnot. Andy is a living legend in Guyana. Um, God has used him to start dozens of churches, plant seminaries. He, he's actually been asked to run for president. He's so well-known. When you're with Andy nobody's going to touch you because you're, you're with him and everybody loves Andy and everybody loves the people that come to the country with Andy, right? So I felt real safe with Andy. It wasn't because he was this ferocious bodyguard. It was just his presence. I'm good. Andy, I mean, we were, we're driving down the road, the whole bus full of people got to go to the bathroom. Andy's like, oh, here's the police station. I know everybody in there. Let's go talk. We're like, at the police station? yeah, no problem. And we just jump off and they're all like having a great time. And I'm like, okay, we're, we're good. 
You know, this guy just, he knew everybody and everybody loved him. And I felt like I was secure in that moment. Maybe you have stories that are more severe than that of where you have been, you felt guarded by someone or something. The reality is we all need protection from sin because the enemy of our soul is prowling around like a, like a roaring lion. You know, we, we're kind of dumb. And we live as though our enemy is wearing cotton boxing gloves and pillows and just going to whack us a little bit. You know what I mean? We kind of walk around like, oh my goodness, I can't believe I got tempted to do that. Like we, we don't understand like, oh, I got run over by a Mack truck of temptation. And, and you're just like, oh, I don't know what happened. I love the illustration of a boxer in the ring who never puts his hand up. Just holds him at his side the whole time. And he's going to try to win a fight. Yeah, good luck. You get beat to death. You can't guard from a punch. You can't strike. You're just like, oh, I don't know what happened. I just got beat to death. <laughs> Men and women, our enemy is like a, a lion prowling around seeking to destroy your soul. And he says, you need a guard. And the only suitable guard is the word of God. And you need that guard. Don't be so foolish to think you can do it without that guard. Charles Spurgeon said, we can sin without thought. We have only to neglect the great salvation and ruin our souls. Isn't that true for you? I don't have to try to sin. It comes easy. I have to try to walk with God. That's what I have to try to do. Sin is just easy. When I die to self, that's what's hard. That's the work of sanctification. But he, he goes on, but to obey the Lord and walk uprightly will meet all our heart and soul and mind and strength. If you are going to live for God, it's going to be the recognition that, Lord, I need you. And your word is central to that. The word would be like the hub of the wheel. Oh, there might be a lot of spokes in that guard but it's all coming off a central hub. If you don't have that hub, your wheel will fall apart. The word of God is a guard. It's a protector, but it also serves as a guard in the, in the, in the idea of a boundary. Did you, ever, did you ever do something where you were really glad for a guardrail? So um, a few years ago, I, I hiked Mount, uh, Half Dome in Yosemite. And uh, the last 1,500 feet of the hike, you've got these tables on the rock. Anybody ever done that? Okay, a few of you? Okay. There's these cables on the rock. Um, you're really grateful for the cables. Um, because on both sides of the cables is about 3,000 feet. And, and it's, it's just a, a gradual roll. Like a guy dropped his water bottle and you just hear it. Ding, 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 ding. And you're like, okay, don't, don't, don't go that way right? So you've got these cables and you're holding the cables going up and you're glad for the guard. And you, you really don't want to think about what would happen if I go over the guard or I go around the guard or I slip out of the guard or whatever, because you just can't think about that or you'll be paralyzed and you'll be stuck there. So you just keep going, but you're inside the guard. We need a guard because Satan masquerades an angel of light. He, he makes sin look really good, doesn't he? In that moment of sin, you're actually deceived and you think it's good for you. You actually think this will make me happy. That's why you get angry. I'll be happier if I get angry right now. I'll be happy if I just go after this drink or this pill or this whatever right now. It'll make me happy in the moment. 
It's why we sin. We think it actually is good for us. And it's why God says you're blind to your sin. Because in the moment of our sin, we're deceived by this angel of light and God's word is a guard. And you know what the sad thing is? We don't even know the guard exists. That's one of the problems. We don't, we don't even know a guard is there because we're not people of this book. And so when we're not in this book, we don't know where the guards are. And then we're like, oh my goodness, what happened? Well, maybe if you just read the word and you knew the word and the word just was part of your soul, they're like, oh, that's an easy call. No, don't, don't, don't do that. No, I, I know how to fight my sin because God's word is a guard. The rail is clear, it's set. I'm not going over that guard. And so God's word is a guard. And so the psalmist is clear. It begins with by guarding it according to your word. And frankly, there is so much biblical illiteracy in the church today that we don't even know the guards that exist. Have you ever been in a conversation with somebody? I'm sure you've never done this. It's always somebody else. A conversation with somebody and, and they're a professing believer and they start talking about their lives and, and, and you're just like, well, well, time out. I'm pretty sure God's word speaks to that. And they're like, no, I don't think it does. No, no, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure it does. Here, let me show you. And they're like, I have no clue. I'm, I'm good. I don't want to know it. I don't even want to know what it says. Right? I don't, I'm good. You know, culture changes, times change, that book's antiquated. You know, for us, I hope we wouldn't say that, but I think often we just don't even know what the word says. And so therefore, we are totally guardless, unable to stand. Well, secondly, he says, God's word's a guard, but he says, with my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. God's word is a guard, but it's also a guide. It's a guide. It's the standard. I can't draw a straight line to save my life. I can't. I use a ruler for everything. I actually take a ruler when I, write, when I write a card, and if I ever write you a card, you'll see this. I take a ruler and I write straight lines in the card because I can't keep a straight line. Some of you think that's funny, but that's okay. That's just me. I have to have a ruler. In my Bible, I pull out my credit card and I underline in my Bible because the lines don't stay straight. If I'm going to try to draw a circle, it's never going to happen. I got to have one of those little protractor thingies to make a circle happen because I can't freehand things very well. I need a standard. I need a guide because I just can't do it. In our lives, don't we constantly go off course? I mean, we're just like, Pew! I love children. There's so many great illustrations for children. And you know what? I love how God calls us children and it kind of humbles us, but it gives us a good perspective on who we are because we think we're so mature. But children are just great because there's, there's no hiding of how they think or act. And it's just, they're constantly like, Pew! Where'd that come from? Oh, why are you doing that? I don't, I don't understand. Like, it just doesn't make sense. And then I stop and I say, oh, Justin, that's exactly what God thinks towards you. Why are you doing that? You're destroying your life. Don't go down that path. And I'm just like, oh, whatever. Going right down it. And we need the guide of God's word because we constantly go off course. It's this standard. It's a map. Have you ever been in the wilderness, lost, I have. I don't like it. Some people like to go out and just get lost and then find where they are. I don't like that. I like to, I like to know where I'm at at all times. I, I really do. I'm kind of OCD when it comes to maps. I like to know where I'm at. Um, and, and I don't like, even in a foreign country, I hate not knowing where I'm at. It kills me. Or a foreign city. I want to know where I am. You know, I've been, uh, I was up in Alaska. I went to missions a few years ago. And I'm so glad for people that know the land up there because it all looks the same, right? Oh, trees, lakes, trees, lakes, more trees, more lakes, more rivers, more trees, more lakes. 
And I'm so glad for something. Oh, I've, I've lived my entire life in this forest. Great, I'm going to stick by you. I want, a, I want a guide. I want a map. Life's confusing. And sin is enticing. And we need a map. We desperately need a guide. Here's the problem, though. With the greatest of sincerity, we will go astray if our map is wrong. And we live in a world full of bad maps. Don't we? Full of relative truth. Can I just step on your toes a little bit this morning? Some of you get your map from the news media. And I'm not saying which one, because I think they're all bad. Okay, so I'm not going to step on whichever one you get to. But your map is the media and the news that you filter everything through. It's a bad map. It's not good. Some of, you map, some of your map just comes from straight pop culture. So you believe in just this kind of emotional love and self-esteem and power of positive thinking. It's a bad map. It's going to lead you astray. And we could go on and on this morning of all the bad maps. Just walk into Barnes & Noble. You'll be like, oh my goodness, bad map, bad map, bad map, bad map. Just guide your life off of any of those things and you will be a wreck. And he says, my, God's word is a guide. It's interesting in verse 10. He actually, it's an, it's an interesting, interesting statement. He commands God. Not in, a, not in a demanding way, but in a pleading way. He p- commands God, don't let me wander from your map. He's just, he is just like crying out to God. God, your word is a guide and I wander all over. Don't let me wander. Please, Lord, keep me true. It goes back to, if you've been justified, what will your heart long for? Oh, God, keep me true to you. I need to not wander from your commandments. And so he is utterly dependent on this, on this guide for his life. But then verse 11, a verse that again is so popular and wonderful for many reasons. Not only is God's word a a guide and a guard, but it's a treasure. He says, I have stored up. I have treasured. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. God's word is a treasure. Here, this word for treasure, I don't know how your Bible translates it. My Bible translates it stored up. Good translations are stored up, treasure, hidden, it all. This is not a verse, okay, on scripture memory. Some of us have, that's what I learned growing up. This is about memorizing your Bible. It's really not about that, even though that's an application of this verse. We, if we treasure it, we'll memorize it. But the point is that you place the highest degree of value on the word of God. So that's our few points here this morning. First is a treasure is something you place great regard or great value upon. Remember Jeremiah 15? Your words were found and I ate them. And they became to me a joy and delight to my soul. That's the word of God here. It's a, it's a treasure. Let me ask you this morning, what do you treasure? And how do you know you treasure it? How do you know you treasure it? I tease my wife that, um, that, that I love God, my family, well, my wife, my kids, my family. I love this church. And then I love my bike. All right. Um, you might be like, you're so weird. I know I'm weird. I just love my bike. I love getting out of my bike. It's, I accept to power it, not like Kenny's. Um, I accept to pedal mine, okay? And, um, 
And, and I just love going out. It's just, I feel, I love the wind blowing by. I love listening to books and sermons as I ride. I can go out and if I had a, a day, I'd take a day. I typically have like an hour, so it's an hour. But I just love my bike. And so she teases me that, well, there's your, there's your bike. You know, I'm glad you, know, you love your bike. Um, I love it. And you know I love it because I talk about it. Hopefully not too much. You know I love it because I'm willing to wear those silly clothes bikers wear when they go riding. <laughs> Doug's already laughing at me right? You love it because it hangs in my garage so that nobody knocks it over, right? And breaks it. it my, my love for that is communicated by time, attention, communication. It's the same in your life. What do you love? It's not that hard. We make these things so complicated. It's really simple. Your love is communicated by the time and attention that you give to something. It's interesting that he says, I have treasured it in my heart. In the Hebrew mindset, the heart was the seat of the affections. It wasn't the thump, thump organ, okay? It was the seat of all of thinking and all of life. Everything came out of the heart. And he said, I've stored it, I've treasured it, I've hidden it in the very deepest recesses of my heart. So he placed great value upon the word and he knew it intimately. Like Psalm 1 verse 2 Psalm 1, verse 2. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. If you truly treasure the word of God, you will not have a casual relationship with it. Right? If you treasure something, you don't treat it casually. It's important to you. Really important to you. So you may, you may get a car. And you really like your car. And when my kid comes out and throws his, the car door into your new car, you're not going to be very happy because you place a certain treasuring upon that new thing. And that's okay to a certain degree, but it's what you treasure. You don't have a casual interaction with it. I had one guy one time come to me and say, Pastor Justin, I, I think that I, I worship my motorcycle. So well, tell me about it. This brother is one of my dearest brothers, okay? This is, so I'm not in any way trying to belittle him. He said, Pastor Justin, I park it in my living room. And I just look at it every night. I mean, now it was a beautiful Ducati, if you know anything about bikes. It was an unreal, I mean, it was an unreal bike. I said, brother, you, you may need to take it out of the living room. All right? Because he loved it. And it was, it was his treasure, um, you don't casually interact with your treasures. You delight in them. It's interesting in verse 11, not only do you delight in it, but it radically shapes your life. Psalm 119.11, I've treasured your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Do you realize treasuring always affects your actions? Every, every time. It affects your actions. So if you're a sports person, you know what game is coming and you've, Nobody comes, nobody interrupts that time. It's like, well, this is the time. No, you can't come over. And if you're going to come over, be quiet because the game's on and, and you can't interrupt it. I treasure that. It affects your actions, right? It could, and that, apply that to whatever scenario in your life it is. You treasure your family. And so, no, I take time and attention and effort and I love them and I care about them. And, and no, you can't come over because I'm with them and I love them and I want them to know that they are loved and I enjoy them. So treasuring always affects your life. So the simple truth here is that if you treasure the word, 
it's going to result in this earnest fighting to live for God because you love the God of the word. Remember the question we started with? How do I keep my way pure? Verse 11 says, that I might not sin against you. And what's sandwiched in the middle? Treasure the word of God. Today, again, we are such a culture of experientialism. Oh, I had this experience. Oh, man, I'm just closer to God. Really? Did you open your Bible? Did, did God do anything in the word? Or did you just have some mystic communication? Because that's not going to protect you. It's not going to guard you. It's not going to guide you. You need the word of God in the life of the believer to guard you from sin. So we treasure the word. So he's asked a question, how do I keep my way pure? He's provided an answer with treasuring the word. And then we have our third thing this morning is the essential application. I love when God's word gives us clear application of of what to do. Remember, treasuring the word produces conformity to the God of the word. Both are in the text this morning. Treasure the word, conformity to the God of the word. Here we get really to the heart of the issue, conformity to the God of the word, the essential applications, verses 12 to 16. Let me read verse 12. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. It's interesting here that if you remember, we started off Psalm 119 with the words, blessed are those who are blameless. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies. Remember, blessing, happiness. Well, this is actually a totally different word in Hebrew. It translates the same into English, but it's different. One is a blessed happiness. This is a blessed worship. This is the word used to bow the knee, to adore and honor one who is supremely worthy of such honor and reverence. And here the psalmist, as he is saying, I'm treasuring the word. I'm being changed by the word. It's like he just explodes in a moment. Blessed are you, Lord. You're worthy of worship. Isn't that not what happens to the believer? Have you ever just been having your devotions and just be like, God, you're great. God, I love you. Maybe you're listening to truth and song and you're just in that moment, you're just like, wow, Lord, you're so good. So good to me. I don't deserve it. That's what's happening here. And you see it throughout the Psalm. David just writing and all of a sudden this moment of blessed be God. God, you're great. God, you're glorious. God, I love you. And I want to praise you. It's interesting here that he says, blessed be God. He magnifies God. Gives, gives glory to God. And then he does another one of his imperative commands again. Remember verse 10? Don't let me wander, God. He, now he does another pleading command. Teach me your statutes. It's interesting, he, he says, God, you're the one worthy of worship. Blessed be God. And instead of running from that God, he runs to that God and he says, teach me. God, I mean, is there a better teacher? Is there a better place to go for instruction? I was talking to Pastor Ernie this week and we were, we were together agreeing that one of the problems in the church today is that we go to every other book to learn about God and we don't go to this book. Did you ever notice that? Can I just be real transparent? I feel like when I open my Bible, the enemy of my soul is like goes on steroids. I'm like so distracted. My, my brain's a pinball machine. And it's easier to go to every other book about the Bible than the Bible. That's not an accident, okay? When you're doing spiritual warfare and you're engaged in the word of God, the enemy of God's not gonna let it go. And so he says, God, I want you to teach me in your word. I don't wanna go somewhere else. I wanna go to your word. Now, I'm not 
downplaying the benefit of Christian resources, but oh, that we would be people of this book and that we wouldn't just get information from somewhere else and assume it's in this book, but we would dive deeply into this book and then as we're doing it, crying out to God, teach me. And I I guarantee you, that's a prayer God hears. You wanna pray in Jesus' name? You wanna pray according to the will of God? Open your Bible and ask God to teach you. That's, That's what it means to pray in the will of God. You're praying prayers that you know he wants. And so you're saying, Lord, do this. You've promised to do this. You've promised to bless your word like rain from heaven. Do it in my soul today. I'm gonna be in your word. Teach me, teach me. So he worships what he treasures. He worships what he treasures in verse 12. And that's true for us too. We worship what we treasure. We ascribe worth to God and we cry out to him to teach us. It's interesting though in verse 13, not only do we worship what we treasure, but we proclaim what we treasure. With my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. You know, we talk about what we value. You wanna get to know me? I'm gonna tell you pretty quick in a conversation about my wife, about my children, about hopefully Jesus and what I do here at Elk Grove Bible Church. But we talk about what we value. I'm always amazed how this happens. If strangers, you walk by somebody and they've got a giant's hat on, you got a giant's hat on, hey, what's up? You just, you talk about what you value. Comes out real quick. Maybe, maybe you've got something in your past that you, somebody walks by wearing that paraphernalia and you're like, hey, nobody else knows what that is, but I do, right? Because you've got an immediate connection. You talk about what you value, You know, I think one of the problems with Christianity is we equate evangelism to an uncomfortable necessity. I've got to go evangelize. Oh boy. Oh, talking about Jesus is so hard. (laughs) Men and women, if we treasure Christ, we'll speak of Christ. Simply put. Can Can I be real frank? If you don't treasure Christ, you won't speak of Christ. Now, is it hard sometimes to speak of Christ? Sure thing. Because we're going to suffer persecution. But if somebody hates my family, I'm not going to stop talking about them. I'm not going to deny them. I'm going to say, hey, you may not like my kids. I don't care. I love my kids. And we may not be friends anymore if you don't like my kids. Just kidding. But I'm like, I love Jesus. And I'm not going to cram him down your throat, but I ain't sure stop talking about him because he changed my life. And I love him. And I'm going to be honest that he changed my life and what he's doing in my life because it's what we treasure. It's just interesting that he worships and he immediately responds with my lips It's interesting, the play on words, if you noticed, my lips will declare the words of your mouth. You spoke, I speak. And I only speak what you spoke. So I declare all the truth that you have already spoken. And so men and women, might we treasure Christ and speak of Christ because we are not ashamed of what we treasure. I just want to ask you, if you're ashamed, do you treasure him? That's a question for my own soul. Because there's times you might think, oh, Pastor Justin, he stands in front of the church. He could never be ashamed. I'm more comfortable doing this than I am with somebody outside the church who doesn't know Jesus. Now, for some of you who hate public speaking, you're like, "Uh uh-uh, I'd rather talk one-on-one all day. But you know that I have to say, I'm not ashamed of him. Right, Romans 1, 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation. So they may not want to hear the message, but it is the power of God. So I'm going to speak of my Savior. Just openly and honestly, I treasure him, he comes out of me. And so we, 
we proclaim what we treasure. It's interesting in verse 14 and 16, not only do we proclaim it, but we delight in what we treasure. Verse 14, in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. And verse 16, I will delight on your statutes. This is convicting. I, I delight in you, God, as much as in all riches. You know, we as Americans, we delight in riches. We're like the richest 2% of the world. We really are. Even if you're the poorest of Americans, we're the, we're the richest 2% of the world. We, we, we love the things that we have in this world. And you know, it's interesting that the author of Psalm 119 was well acquainted with riches, just like we are. He knew the pull of stuff. And he said, I delight in you as much as in all riches. Everything that could have be offered, God, I delight in you more. It's interesting here that affections always follow treasuring. Always. You will have affection for what you treasure every time. I have a hard time with Christians who have no affection for Jesus. One author I read says, how can that be possible? Because everything else in life you do with, you do with affection and emotion. You hit the snooze button with emotion. Right? You get dressed with emotion. You eat your food with emotion. He says, if you treasure the word, you'll delight in it. And delight is something that comes out of us, right? Right? It, it is an emotion. Now, we're not saying our faith is emotional. Remember first week, emotions come out of truth. We're not, we're not just emotional people. We're people grounded in truth. The truth that my wife loves me and that I love her, guess what? It has emotional responses. The truth that there's a God who, who loves me and a Savior who died for me and the God who revealed himself to me, it elicits emotional responses to him. And if you love him, if you treasure him, you will delight in him. And it's interesting that throughout this psalm, he's like we're going back and forth. I treasure him, I delight. Guess what? The more I delight, the more I go back to treasuring. And the more I treasure, the more I delight. And this is where as we mature as Christians, you'll find people who treasure more and delight more. And they treasure more and they delight more. Just like the couple who says, oh, we've been married 50, 60, 70 years and our marriage has never been better. You're not bored yet? I mean, it's not old hat? No, it's amazing. You treasure, you delight, and it increases treasuring and delight. And so here in Psalm 119, we delight what we treasure and it increases our treasuring. Well, the last, well, this, the last two, verse 15, we delight what we treasure, but also we meditate on what we treasure. These are the essential applications. Well, we will meditate on what we treasure. Now this word meditation, we gotta set it straight, okay? The, the Eastern mystics have stolen it. All right, meditation is not sitting with your legs crossed and your fingers up and um. Meditation is not yoga, okay? It's not getting in a weird position and then closing your eyes and feeling inner peace. Meditation is not clearing your mind of everything so something out there can fill it. It's really dangerous. Meditation is a, is a Bible word and we want to use Bible words, okay? So we understand it. Meditation is really, is really simple. It's thinking deeply upon God's truth with, with care and focus. It's thinking deeply on God's truth. So 
We want to be people who, who meditate on the scriptures. We think deeply with focus and care on God's truth. So he says in verse 15, I will meditate on your precepts and I will fix my eyes on your ways. Meditation, okay, you ready for this? It always follows what you love. You don't meditate on things you hate. There's this guy who was a family member of some friends of mine. His name was Smalls. Smalls had uh, some sort of autism um, that he was high functioning um, and he was really good at crunching numbers. I'm talking like, like unreal at crunching numbers, okay? Smalls um, loved baseball. Um, and and he, when he died a few years ago, they found stacks, I'm talking like stacks of notebooks, where he had taken every stat ever recorded from like 1983 in baseball and written them down in these journals with a, a, a uh, magnifying glass over his pencil in such small print that you couldn't even see it with your eye. I mean, he, and he had such a mind that if you wanted to talk to Smalls and ask him about baseball, it was like ding, ding, the files were going boom right there. He could tell you the batting average of the player and the year. I mean, it was just unbelievable, right? Smalls loved baseball. And it drove him to be a mastermind of all things baseball. But he meditated on it because he loved it. Remember, meditate to think deeply and carefully? That's what Smalls did with baseball because he loved it. Now, some of you in here, you have other affections. And those affections drive what you love. You think deeply about it. Some of you in here have deep affections for certain patterns of life. And so you think deeply about what foods you eat. And others of us are like, hey, I just eat it because it tasted good. That's fine. Your affection for something drove your thoughts towards something and you meditate on it. You meditate on, on your family because you love them. Here he says, I delight in your word. Well, wouldn't it just make sense? I meditate on it. I think deeply about it because I love you. And I want to know you. And it's interesting that not only does meditation follow your affections, but meditation fuels your affections. The more you meditate, the more you love. And when you are meditating on God, there's nothing more infinitely lovely, infinitely good, infinitely wonderful, and your mind is just blown with how great he is. And it's like, yes, I want to do this more. One of my steady resources for this entire sermon series is, is called Spurgeon's Treasury of David. You can get it for a couple dollars online, I think, in Kindle format. The treasuries of David are awesome, not because they're a great commentary. It was because Charles Spurgeon, who was one of the prince of, they call him the prince of preachers of the 1800s, masterful preacher in London. He, he was just having his devotions. And he, he was going through Psalm, the Psalms. And he wrote in his journal, on the Psalms. And when he died, they found his journal and they made him into three books because his meditation on God was so awesome. And so he's just saying, God, I'm just going to write on you, about you, because you're awesome. And the more he wrote, the more he loved. Meditation fuels affection. I just want to help us real quick this morning as we finish, this, finish our time together. Three suggestions for how to meditate on God. I think we live in a culture today that it's, it's so hard to meditate on God. We, we have a myriad of distractions, do we not? I mean, my wrist beeps at me, my pocket beeps at me, my desk beeps at me, my children yell at me, the TV's blaring this way, music's on in the background, 
My, my schedule is, is color-coded and full. And I'm called to meditate on God. And I think we need some help with this. So I just wanted to give you three suggestions for how to better meditate on God. Number one is, is get alone with God. Get alone with God. You know, every godly person I've ever met and studied, truly where I'm just amazed by their walk with God, you know one of things that blows my mind every time? They get up early to have time alone with God. And you know why that, that bothers me? Because I don't like mornings. So I want to put God somewhere else in my day. And you know what I keep coming back to? If you're going to meditate on God, you might just need to get up earlier. Now, I'm not saying you've got to get up early to be godly. I'm saying that's what it looks like in my life. Before my kids are out of bed, if I'm not in the word, it ain't going to happen. If I'm not getting alone with God for quiet meditation, so get alone. Get alone. Secondly, be technology free. You can't meditate when the TV's on. You just can't do it. It won't happen. Oh, you might get information, but you ain't going to meditate on God. Remember, think deeply, think carefully. You're not going to do it. You can't do it if your phone's dinging. Put it away. Take it somewhere else. I try to get my phone away from me. I try to do it away from technology because I can't, I mean, I just, something's going to ding, beep, like, something. I'm going to say, get it away. Get alone with God. Get technology away from me. So be free of those things. And number three, kind of simple, but open your Bible. Open your Bible. I, I don't want to assume, because I know me, and I know humanity, that, that we're all reading our Bibles every day for hours. Okay? I mean, we're try, I, hope, I hope you're trying to be in the Word. But there might be days you're like, oh man, it's been a few days. It's been a few, few weeks. I don't know when the last time I got alone with God was. I mean, I love sermons and I listen to stuff, but it's just hard. I get it, brothers and sisters. I get it. But we need to open our Bibles and get alone with God and say, Lord, teach me. Lord, I need you right now to teach me your will and your ways for my life. I want to know you. And so here, I think this is really the crux of this issue. We treasure, we delight, we value, we think deeply on God. One of my friends um, says that in evangelism today, the hardest thing is that we are in a culture of non-thinkers. We like to think we're thinkers, but we're not. We're soundbite morons, right? And I put myself in the category. I see a headline, I take it as truth, and I run with it. I don't even really read the article. I mean, I might read a few, right? But I mean, it's like, I, we get soundbites in, tw- in tweets, and that's our, that's our information. We want things fast paced. And we need to just get alone and think and think deeply on God. And let's not just fall prey to the culture of non-thinkers, but to say, God, I want to think deeply and often on you. I want to know you. Well, I love what he finishes with in verse 16. I'm going to delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. You remember what you treasure, simply put. Don't you? Nobody has to remind Dante that he got married two weeks ago. If you forget that, brother, we got to talk. All right? That's one of those like, uh, no, that's a lifelong thing. I'm going to remember that. I treasure her. I value her. I remember it. Simply put. And frankly, I just don't think we treasure God enough 
because if we treasure him, we remember him. And so David says, I promise to remember you because I treasure you, I delight in you, I value you, I meditate on you. I'm not gonna forget your word. And so when we delight in something, it causes remembering to be an easy privilege. It's where our attentions go and they gravitate to. We don't forget what we treasure. Brothers and sisters, this morning we started with the statement, treasuring the word of God produces conformity to the God of the word. All of these things this morning, the question we asked, the answers that are given, the application that's provided, they're all essential. That we'd be people who treasure the word of God. As we treasure this word, it will conform you. Remember the Newton's third law thing? There's an action upon you. If you're a child of God, God saved you. And there's an action that's gonna come from that. You're gonna be transformed in the image of Christ. How? You're treasuring this book. You're gonna delight in the God of this book. And you're gonna be transformed by that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this morning we have gone far and wide in your word. I pray that we've been faithful to your word this morning. And Father, I pray that your word would find root this morning in all of our souls. That none of us this morning would go away unfazed by your word or unchanged by your word but that as we go throughout this week, your word would be the treasure of our souls and that it would conform us to the image of Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen.